From the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm Eric Smith, Managing Editor of the Swanee Review, and I'm here today with the poet Jennifer Habel, author of Good Reason, which won the Stevens Poetry Manuscript Competition. Her poems have appeared in The Believer, Gulf Coast, and the Massachusetts Review. Her latest collection, The Book of Jane, was chosen by Brenda Shaughnessy as the winner of the Iowa Poetry Prize. Jennifer Habel, welcome to the Swanee Review Podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. So first, congratulations on winning the Iowa Poetry Prize for The Book of Jane. That has to be a really fantastic feeling. It, yeah, it really was. I really admire Brenda Shaughnessy's writing. So when I found out she was the judge, it was an even greater honor. I feel thrilled and lucky. I wondered if you'd read from the book, just sort of give us a taste of it. I was hoping you might start with the first poem in the collection. Yeah, sure. So this is Jane and the Relative Adverb. And actually, I had it in an earlier draft as the last poem in the book. And then a friend of mine gave me the good idea of maybe moving it to the first. And that was really kind of transformative. Jane and the Relative Adverb. Inside where is here, and inside here is her, and inside her is, wait, what is where, Jane hears, an adverb, Jane avers, where is her, inside we, she sees. I've never read that poem except to myself before. It's it's funny, yeah, I've never read it publicly, so it's interesting to think, how do you read it? How does that change your feel of the poem? Well, I was just realizing that that interruption I needed to read as an interruption. So I wasn't prepared for that. You know, next time I read it, I'll be thinking, okay, I need to, I need to make that interruption feel like an interruption. And I guess it feels like something that I need to read sort of slowly. It's a small poem. I guess it's tracking observation and thought. So if I move too quickly, I think it won't render that quality of it. But I, you know, actually reading it out loud, I, I wonder how well it translates because a lot of it for me was about seeing those words. And so I don't know to somebody listening, would you even really follow the logic of the poem? Yeah. I, I want to double back to something you said because one of my questions was, was this always the first poem in the book? I know you said it was the last. So when you did move it to the front, how did that change the sort of trajectory, both of the poem and the manuscript. I think the struggle for me in putting this manuscript together was that there are a lot of poems about this character Jane, but there are a lot of other kinds of poems as well. And so for one, I had to figure out to what extent this is Jane's book, which I didn't even know when I was titling the book. And then once I had called it the book of Jane and I just became more accustomed to the idea that this is sort of her book with other things mixed into it. So I initially put it at the end of the book, I think trying to come back to Jane and not leave her after this long poem that's about another person, this artist Sophie Matisse. But then once I moved it to the beginning, I sort of realized that to begin by saying, where is she, made perfect sense because that's in many ways what this book is studying is, where is this person? and who is she inside of the we that's all around her? And I think 
much of the book explores the way this character's aspirations and feelings are influenced by her relationships and her responsibilities. I think those ideas are introduced in this poem. As it stands now, the book is opening with this idea of inside where is here and inside here is her. And the book is ending with a line about there you are, Jane. So I inadvertently ended up bookending, you know, with this idea of where is she? There she is, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And one of the reasons when I'm reading that poem, I feel that it crystallizes so many of the modes and motifs of the entire collection. You have Jane, the persona, of course. There's also the collection's interest in etymology and origins, Mm -hmm. erasure, collage, and that sort of recombinant DNA of language, how it just proliferates Mm -hmm. through our manipulation of it. And so I want to talk to you about a lot of those themes, but I guess I want to ask about the genesis of that poem in particular. So what was the catalyst for Jane and the Relative Adverb? The original catalyst is really just looking at the word where while my daughter was doing her spelling homework. You know, and you're like, wait, is that how you spell where? Is that really, you know? And so, and I guess I noticed that about the word. For a long time, I was trying to write these alphabet poems. And some of those have been in the Swanee Review, but I was even before that writing alphabets where there would just be like four or five lines for each letter. And an early kind of abridged version of this was my W for where. And it was just a fragment that was sitting around for a long time. And really pretty late in writing these Jane poems, I realized it could be its own poem. So it wasn't, it wasn't like this, but it was, that was the origin of this poem. And then I really liked this idea of the relative adverb because so much of this book is about Jane being surrounded by relatives. And then the next poem in the book has Einstein in it. So this idea of relativity in comparison to this very small poem about a relative adverb just appealed to me. I think that was the origin of it. And that interruption, you know, when I'm with my children, I'm always being interrupted in thinking. So in some ways it was just enacting that experience I have all the time of thinking and then being interrupted and then trying to go back to thinking. That was part of my curiosity is knowing that how you found your way into that poem. I wondered if that was representative of the way you usually find your way into what you discover Mm -hmm. in a poem or what is that when you realize the experience you're having or the way you're listening or the space you're occupying in your life is a thing that will become a poem. Mm. For me, more and more, there's a pretty big lag time. When I first started writing poems, it would be a much quicker space between an impulse and the actual writing of something about it. Now I feel like a lot of time can go by and I don't even know if I really have a lot of thoughts about poems unless I'm actually at my desk. So I sit down and I'm just thinking and taking notes and so something will come back to me. So it, it, this, in this case, it wasn't even like I, it happened, I wrote it down. It was more that just later I remembered it. I feel like more and more I think this has had to do with being a parent that Unless I'm alone, usually at my desk, I don't really think like a writer. I don't just don't experience 
my experiences in that way, really. And in some ways, that feels like a, a shortcoming in me or a sense of frustration. But in other ways, it's, I think, really is a lot of the reason why I write and write so regularly is because that is when I think in this way. And it's really the only time that I do. And so it's, it's a practice and it's a mode of thinking and being that I don't feel like I exist in for most of my day. And I think that one of the things I've kind of realized is that it's also about maybe our definition of who an artist is, who's a writer, you know? And I wasn't really relating to Jane like she was a creative person as I was writing these poems about her. But then, as we've corresponded about previously, this idea of making her the author of this final poem in the book, suddenly had to look at her and think, there's all these examples of her throughout the book as being a person with aspirations and thoughts and things in her office and poems in her mind. And it was almost like I was having trouble seeing her as that kind of a person. And I think, as I said, that does speak to our ideas about what does it look like? Who is a person making art? What do they look like? What does their life look like? And the fact that I was having trouble even seeing her in that way is is kind of remarkable to me, you know, given that in some ways she's based on me and I'm sitting there writing the poems about her. But as I look at her in this, in her larger life, it's hard even for me to see her as that person. I want to ask about the way you and the book correspond. So I'm curious what drew you, especially in terms of the more traditionally intertextual elements of the book, like sewing samplers or journals, what drew you to those sources as as places where poems might emerge from? The earliest iteration of this project was my interest in early educational primers and books that taught people how to read. And then I was particularly interested, I think, in the way we educated girls historically. And that led to an interest in needlepoint and just looking at, you know, samplers were things that girls made as part of their educational process. And I sort of tried for a long time to write poems about those and poems that kind of mimicked the form of those. And I wrote a lot of poems that were in the form forms that you would find in early primers. So these kind of alphabet poems I was telling you about, I did like catechisms and little, almost like fables, reading exercises. And eventually I lost most of that, but I think there's ghosts of it. So that's where I got interested in, in needlepoint and just more generally art that young women, women were making anonymously and not thinking of as art thinking of his craft or thinking of as a something they were doing for school or whatever and not thinking of themselves as artists. So I guess this is, you know, and you can see how this kind of connects to what I was just saying about Jane too and then how she conceives of herself. I'm attracted to this idea of making art out of modest pieces of things. So I liked in Mary Bauer's diary about how she's stitching together a dress out of pieces of an old dress. And so, yeah, just sort of a fascination with that and admiration of it and thinking about how women's art 
can be seen as small or circumscribed, how women can see themselves as being small. And so just all those kind of ideas swirling around for me. And I think I look at them in a lot of different lights and from different avenues through some of the poems that are about, you know, things other than Jane, other characters, other. And I guess all along, I really didn't know how it would all fit together. And I just hoped that it would, that my preoccupations would hold together in some way. Would you read one of the Mary Bowers pocket diary poems? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is wealth from a sequence of poems in which all the language comes from this woman, Mary L. Bowers' pocket diary that she kept in the year 1870. Had a present of some green knit gloves. Had a declamation entitled, Our Glorious Dead. Had visitors. Had grill cakes. Had a nap which refreshed me muchly. Had a gay time, a nice time, had a first-rate time and a good deal of fun over my curls. Had plenty of time to think and build air castles for the future. Had visitors, had shortcake, had rather be alone. Had a letter from Elnora, had a letter from Elvira. Mr. L gave me a cucumber, Mr. Richardson sent me a book. Had strange thoughts and feelings, Sherman sent me an orange. Had some music, had a love feast, a jubilee. Paulina picked a milk pan full of strawberries, and we ate them all up. Had onions for dinner, had lots of fun by the brook. Had a stove apple in the eve, and that was more than I expected. These, the poems, the Mary Bowers poems, are from her pocket diary, but your conceiving of them is rooted in the cento. Right. So I wondered if you would talk about your relationship to that form of making. What what drew you to the Cento? What recommended the Pocket Diary as a source for this kind of quilting and combination and sort of remanufacture of that text? Well, I've always been interested in quotation and I think in some ways my starting to get interested in poetry probably had to do with the fact that I kept like a commonplace book as a young person and I started out writing in it song lyrics you know like about thwarted love you know and then eventually it morphed into copying down stanzas of poems so what I was putting in there got better but I've always been drawn to writers and poets that incorporate other people's language into their poems and I've feel like I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to do it in a satisfying way. I remember doing a big project on that in graduate school, just looking at poets that quoted from other sources. So that's the earliest derivation of that. And finding this pocket diary happened because part of my job, I'm the coordinator of creative writing at the University of Cincinnati. And so one of the things I do is I keep track of our graduate students' accomplishments. And when I was writing up, one of our graduate students had a fellowship at I think it was like the New England Antiquarian Society or something like that. And as I was doing this thing, I thought, what is that? Looked that up and from there saw a link to this woman's pocket diary. And I was just attracted to how she sounded. And my first idea was to do a poem that was all about the way she talked about the weather 
because I was struck by the fact that so many of her entries start with the word pleasant. And one of the poems that you all published is a version of that. But so I first thought, I'm just going to write one poem that's all about the way she uses the word pleasant, which also resonated for me because she feels uh, pressure to be pleasant herself. So obvious connection. And then after I'd done that, I guess it sat for a long time and I wasn't satisfied with it. And somehow eventually I just started thinking I'll do a bunch of them. And, and then I had the idea that they would all just be words that started with W because I'd had weather. And I guess my idea was that I probably could have done this for the whole alphabet or just happened. It was sort of random that I ended up with W as being what I focused on, but I just needed some way to organize myself and organize my relationship to that text. And so once I had the letter W, I just had lists of words, nouns, all nouns that W and just started thinking about her diary in relation to each of those words. And I had a lot I didn't use and a lot that didn't work. And then I guess I think I maybe have about 18 or 19 of them. And then I just kind of exhausted myself. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, actually, and a really interesting way to spend time with this person. And really all the centos that I've done, their origin is in just being drawn to the way a person sounds on the page or out loud. And I just encounter a text that I want to spend time with and try and engage with in some way. And it's a strange thing to be doing sometimes, I think. Why am I doing this? And also, it's a, it's a little strange to be making something out of somebody's words rather than just, they're already their own words. They've already said what they wanted to say, so why am I doing this? And I, I guess it just gives me pleasure in some way. And I... Guess I like the feeling of restraint is another thing that occurs to me. As, as I'm working on these, I have this finite set of words that I can use. And I'm not somebody that writes in traditional form. I do like setting up these other kind of restraints for myself. And so this is, this is one. I like trying to make something that feels worthwhile out of something that has a limited vocabulary, if that makes sense. But these poems feel different. I mean, they're, they're a little bit more puzzle-like than when I'm just writing a poem myself. feels like I have to solve some sort of puzzle that I've set up. And they all seem to require finding a form, that the earliest iterations of them are, are not in a form, and then and I have to find it in, other, in order to be satisfied with the poem. So for hers, it was kind of this sense of a glossary that somehow defined her year and told a story about her of sorts. As I'm talking, I'm just realizing that I left out of her year the fact that she was a school teacher part of that year only a few months of it and at that time it would just be like she just was thrown into teaching a class with no training and didn't seem to enjoy it very much i'm realizing that i left that out of her year and i also left out of jane's poems her profession i don't know why i did that i didn't make that connection till just now it's one of the things i was curious about in these poems is that it's clearly a what drives them is a, a very fruitful impulse um, mm -hmm. like you said you have 18 of these poems and the, the restraint that you have to put them under and the limitations you put on them formally or in terms of language it makes sense that they would be a generative impulse but i was also curious because it i wonder if there's a paradox there as well in what you just said that in doing this you're required as the poet to make choices and in a way erase 
mm-hmm. certain parts of these lives and these experiences, whether it's Jane's profession or Mary Bowers's profession. Mm-hmm. And because so many of the Sintos in the book are interested in the lives of women on the margins of so-called male genius, whether mm-hmm. it's Matisse or Basquiat or Einstein or Balanchine, I wonder how you navigate that. There's a way in which you're bringing these stories forward, but you also have to make choices. You that There are going to be things that are left out of their lives. Yeah. You know, I have no idea if she could see what I had done to her diary, if she would like that or be horrified by that. I'm not really trying to represent her accurately. I guess I was maybe trying to represent some sort of truth that I saw, that gap between actual truth or truth, truth or whatever in poems. It is a, it's a vexing thing. I guess I am thinking again about this idea of repurposing materials and wearing a dress that's made up of pieces of somebody else's dress. I guess I feel like I would probably be okay with someone doing that to my poems. I mean, if they were doing it in the spirit in which I feel like I've been doing it, which was that I just really felt drawn to spending time with their words. I think if I thought someone had wanted to do that to my words, I'd be surprised and interested and not displeased, I guess. But I, I see what you're saying, that, that, that it is in this idea of speaking about the way that these things have been marginalized or lost or not paid attention to, that in trying to bring them in, into view, I'm also altering them in some way and erasing things. And it is a vexing thing. I maybe have to get a better answer to that question for myself. I mean, what you were talking about earlier about truth seems to be both generative and generous mm. because I think I think there's a difference in what you're doing and forgive me if I'm just sort of overreading onto but there's a difference between verisimilitude mm-hmm. you know recasting with some kind of accuracy their lives and instead what I feel like you're doing in the book which is presenting a, a version of their lives that allows them to inhabit it that gives them a kind of truth that historically would have, been vacated or not been possible. It would have been easy to say to one of Balanchine's dancers, so you're just doing his choreography mm-hmm. as a way to deny the actual movement of that body mm-hmm. or to say, oh, you're just keeping a commonplace book or a journal without saying, well, in some ways, that's sort of what the prelude is as well. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so yeah. it seems to me animated by generosity more than anything. I'm mm-hmm. just think it's so interesting as a as an impulse yeah i think it my attraction to doing it wasn't making a statement or anything it was more that i felt moved by these things and connected to them in some way and i maybe just want to say you know look at these things too they're small and anonymous and the people doing them maybe didn't feel like they were doing some great thing but I look at them and, and feel very moved by thinking about these people doing them. The dancers felt like they were instruments of this other person's vision. But, you know, I'm moved by their discipline and their craft and their sacrifice and their artistry, too. I guess I'm just trying to maybe adjust the lens a little bit where it's being pointed. In some ways, I'm just doing what I like. And it's really as simple as that. I'm just reading about things that I'm interested in that thing about Robert Frost about the difference between the poet and the scholar is like the poet just goes out for a walk and sees what burrs will attach to him and I I think my reading is like that I just read and 
wait to see what sticks to me. You know, this book is made up of things that stuck to me. There were other things that stuck to me too that I couldn't make a satisfying poem out of. So these are the ones that stuck to me and that I was able to bring to completion in some way. I have boxes of ones that I wasn't able to do that with. You saying that reminds me of probably my favorite poem in the book is Warp and Weft. Oh, really? Okay. Um, which I think is it's a fantastic piece. And I wanted to ask you about specifically now, I had it marked down because I loved it. But that moment where you have Charlotte Bronte say to talk about sewing as providing cover for the sewing girl to think and for mm-hmm. her to say the most downcast glance has its own loophole. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like you talking about the burrs that attach and your fascination with the things you were just fascinated with. It seems to me that's a part of that is doing the thing that fascinates you creates a loophole mm-hmm. for thinking for the imagination, especially in a in a place that we wouldn't maybe expect it to emerge. Yeah, absolutely. And as I was saying before, what I think poetry is for me, that's a downcast glance too, isn't it? Yeah. I'm really moved by these thoughts of how girls and women had to furtively think or create, you know, Jane Austen covering up her pages and all of that because you you had to have your attention always directed outward at pleasing other people or serving other people, but finding these places to think or be creative. And obviously, you know, I experienced that in my own life to a much lesser degree, but finding those ways to to think and and create and everybody does. It's not it's not just women that have to do this. Everybody does. But there's these these kind of really tangible tangible images from the past of women finding those ways to do that, which are, you know, modest but also determined. So how do you find your own loopholes in your life? What are they? Well, the biggest one I have is that I have an office. And so, and it's full of debris that interrupts my ability to think. You know, on my desk has poetry books in a stack. It also has all these forms and papers and bills that I need to pay attention to. And and then it has my drafts and my computer. You know, so it's kind of, when I sit down there, sometimes I end up paying attention to practical matters. And sometimes I end up paying attention to poems or creative matters. So, I mean, that's the biggest way. I also have made choices professionally to mean that I have time. So I've chosen to work part-time. I've been lucky enough to be able to do that because my husband works full-time. But I've turned down. I used to teach full-time, and I gave that up and stopped teaching, at least temporarily, to focus more on writing. So that was you know, a vexing decision, but one that I'm comfortable with, at least for now. So practically speaking, that that's how I've found loopholes and that's probably it because otherwise I'm a person I'm a person that really isn't able to write if I feel like there's a lot of other things I need to take care of so I'm somebody that has to take care of those things first usually before I can do those things so I have to set my life up in such a way that enables me to do this Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. 
To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. If we're going to talk about the book of Jane, we've got to talk about Jane. Sure. Thought I'd ask you first if you would read one of your Jane poems. All right, I'll try another one that I've never read out loud before, except at my desk. So um, this is Jane and the Escapes. Jane reads about an octopus that slipped through a gap at the top of its tank, slithered eight feet across the floor, then slid 164 feet down a drain pipe into the sea. Jane's friend tells her that her favorite disorder is dissociative fugue. The sign on Jane's daughter's fort says Jane can come in, but Jane does not. How is Jane? She's Jane. It was futile to argue with Jane's father, and it still is. Jane's husband says it doesn't concern you. Where is Jane going? She'll be right back. What is she doing? She'll be right back. The morning staff found a wet trail across the aquarium floor. We'll miss him, but we hope he does well in his new life, said the aquarium manager. There's always Thoreau's RSVP. Such are my engagements to myself that I dare not promise. The only inflexible part of an octopus is its beak. At night, Jane reads to her daughters about a donkey that becomes a rock. Don't worry, Jane stays Jane. The way Earth looked from orbit, said the astronaut, Jane's daughters spinning on the lawn. The octopus that escaped had a name, and so did the one that stayed. When did you first meet Jane? I don't remember what my first Jane poem was. I thought of her, so because I had this interest in readers, I read Dick and Jane, and I did some erasures from Dick and Jane books. So initially I thought of her as sort of an updated Jane, Jane all grown up. That's how I at first thought of her. Don't remember my first one. It may have been Jane Shame, which is about her sitting outside of her daughter's ballet class with all these other mothers. I think that one of the things that happened was I decided to not use first person in writing this book. And so then I needed a character, I needed a way to write about, you know, in some ways, as I've said, Jane is, those poems are coming out of my life to some extent. I really saw her as, I didn't really even see her as a character. I saw her as just sort of a type, as an example, an example of a kind of a woman. All the titles are, she's not doing anything. She's located in places. So it's, she's, she's here, she's there. So I saw them almost as just little snapshots of this woman. And as I think I already said, I think I didn't really even know who she was until I put the book together. I just saw her in these moments and then tried to see what they added up to and whether she could sustain a book. And I remember years ago when I read here in Suwannee, Adam Ross was at the reading and then took some of my poems for the review. Some were Sentos and some were Jane poems. And I had sent him, I don't know, 15 or 20 pages of poems. I had no idea if they would, if they were part of the same project. I thought they might be separate projects. But at that time when we talked about it, he said, I think that they're the same project. That was something good to hear early on. And I kept sort of thinking, well, 
don't know. He said they were, so I keep going. <laughs> Maybe they are. They didn't really, I, I couldn't really hold them together in my head. Um, but I, I don't actually think a whole book of Jane poems would really be a very satisfying book. There's too many, it'd be too many of them. And I wanted her split up. You know, I, I thought, at first I thought, oh, I could have a book where there's a Jane section and there's a Mary section and there's a Sophie Matisse section. But I didn't actually think the Jane poems would work as well, just one after another after another, because maybe because they are just these little set pieces and you need to come away from her and come back to her. So when did you start trusting these threads coming together in the manuscript? I started to know that my preoccupations were similar in all of them. So I saw that they were connected in that way. I decided I would just keep going and just doing what I wanted to do. And then I would, when I felt like I had sort of exhausted myself, I would hope that they worked. And if they didn't, I would just go from there. And then it was it was a definitely a challenge to try to order the order the book, and then once I did it, I thought I think they go together well enough, and I'm really actually still just working to make it feel even a little more cohesive for me. But I guess maybe once I came to that realization that a whole book of Jane wouldn't be a good book, I don't think. And once I started feeling like a whole book of these centos also would I think feel like a somewhat repetitive book, I realized okay. I'm going to try to, they need to go together. So I'm going to try to figure out how to put them like a puzzle again. I was going to try to solve the puzzle of how to put them together. And so I feel that, and I, you know, who knows what I'll do next, but I feel like I had to kind of wear myself out on thinking about this subject. And then I had, this is what I had, this is what I came up with. So are you thinking now of a new project? Is there, is, are there new kind of, kinds of burrs collecting on your cuffs or? <laughs> you know, it's, I really do love thinking about that. No, I, not yet. It'll, I think it will take me a while. Uh, something that I wanted to do before doing this book, and I still hope to do this sometime, is Sewanee would be a good place to do this, so you can have this idea if you want. I, I, when I used to live in Amherst, Massachusetts, I lived near a really nice walk that went sort of through fields and the woods. And what I wanted to do was take that walk every day at the same time regardless of the weather, take it every day of the year, and also read about the flowers and the birds and read, learn about the place. And, and I wanted to write a book out of that. But practically speaking, I didn't have time to do the walk and read about it and write. And so I thought that is just gonna have to be a project for when I have a different kind of life. So I still wanna do that, but I don't think I have that life yet. I imagine I'll just, Again, I'll just start doing something and then start to figure out what it is that I'm doing. That's what's happened every other time. And then get some help from a few other people, help me figure out what it is that I'm doing. Because I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I feel like you have to kind of be stupid about your own work to some extent. Keep your head down and not, not look up and survey the scene too soon. At least that's my experience. I'll try to do that again. What? It worked great for the Book of Jane. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Would you read Worth for us? Yeah, sure. I actually was going to say it would be my pleasure to, which I would never say about one of my own poems. That never feels like it's my pleasure. But because um, these are Mary's words, it, it actually is a pleasure. Worth. Another new year I am spared to see. The future 
I do not dare try to picture before me. I know something more than I knew before. I am full of wonderments. Jennifer Hable, it's been so great to have you here on the Swanee Review Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your amazing poems. And we're so excited for you and for the Book of Jane. Thanks, Eric. And, and thank you to the Swanee Review for supporting my work over the last couple of years. It's been a real encouragement to me. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at thesuwanneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website, or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Suwannee Review. Special thanks to our producer, Helen Wynana, and sound engineer Alex Martin. Music by Annie Bowers. Until next time, this is the Suwannee Review, new since 1892.